Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations, rather than books. Welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. Our featured guest on today's show is Melissa Fu, talking about her epic debut novel, Peach Blossom Spring. We'll also hear from Claire Beasley about her debut novel, Waiting for the Winds to Change. And we're chatting to Cathy Moore, talking about the upcoming Cambridge Literary Festival. There's also not one competition, but two competitions. There's a chance to win a signed copy of Melissa's wonderful novel and a poetry competition for younger poets. We'll be talking about that later in the show. Melissa, we'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment. But first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Hello, Lee. <laughs> Lovely to have you here. And as I say, we've got a poetry competition later for younger poets. We're going to be talking about Peach Blossom Spring, but you yourself have published poetry pamphlets. You've had short stories, finally settling on a novel. But actually, I can see the poetry and the short story in the novel. Yeah, I think... Um Definitely learning on some of the shorter form. Not that the shorter form is necessarily easier in any way, but I could focus on a poem for, you know, a week or something and just have a couple hundred words to deal with or a short story, maybe several months. But again, it's a smaller number of moving parts to think about. And then I could really try to think about craft and it helped me feel better about being a, a writer in general when I went to start a big project like a novel. And storytelling is, uh, as we'll find out, an important part of the novel. There are many stories within it. There are some Chinese stories, uh, like folk tales in it, and getting the chance to retell them, it was it was sort of a chance to um, change the tone, take a folk tale type tone, as opposed to the larger narrative of what's going on in the, the historical fiction of the novel. And... Um, it was a playful thing to do. <laughs> and this is a competition that we'll be learning about later for young writers. Was that you? Have you been writing since you were young? Maybe a little bit when I was very young. So if any, you know, school-age writers are writing, keep it up, keep writing. <laughs> Secondary and, and, and higher up, yeah, keep writing. I think I sort of stopped for a long time and would write papers for classes and for university. But the creative bit took a back seat until pretty much adulthood. And now look where you are. We're, yeah. we're going to be talking to you about your uh, wonderful novel in just a moment, but we'll hear your first choice of music as well very shortly. Is music important to you? Oh, very important, yeah. I think in another life, had I enough practice and talent, well, that would be a dream to have been a, a musician. <laughs> and what about this one then, Kate Wolfe here in California? Why this one? This song by Kate Wolfe is one that I've I've always loved. Loved the sound and I could sing to it. And I remember listening to it and my dad sort of popping his head into the room and I, you know, I was singing it pretty soulfully and he's like oh you know what's this golden california and and um if you hear when you hear the song he'll say oh you didn't take her advice but i always was charmed that he liked the song as well but then thinking about this novel california is also known as gold mountain in chinese culture and a lot of the chinese immigrants who went, who went to california thought they were going to be finding gold and it just struck me more recently how poignant it was that 
you know, this song is about how there was no gold in, in California and, and that my dad liked it kind of lines right up with, with him as a person and the character Henry Dow that's sort of based on him in my novel. When I was young, my mama told me She said, child, take your time And that was Here in California by Kate Wolfe, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Melissa Fu. Melissa was a regional winner of the Words and Women 2016 Prose Competition and a 2017 Apprentice with The Word Factory. Her debut poetry collection, Falling Outside Eden, was published in 2019, the same year she became the David T.K. Wong Fellow at the University of East Anglia. Her debut novel, Peach Blossom Spring, came out last month. It tells the epic story of mother and son, Meilin and Renshu, as they move through war-torn China, searching for home and family, before settling in Taiwan and America. Christy Leftiri, author of The Beekeeper of Aleppo, said... I absolutely adored this novel about love and war, migration and belonging. I walked with the characters, felt what they felt. During moments of deep sadness and loss, there is also beauty. The beauty of enduring love, of identity, of hope. Melissa Fu portrays the time, the culture, the place and the struggles of this family so vividly with nuance and colour and life. Her writing is subtle and powerful. It follows you like the smell of the peach blossoms. A stunning achievement. Well, Melissa, it is literally just out, so I'm sure there will be more glowing reviews, but that quote from Christy absolutely sums the novel up for me as well. And this is an epic novel. It spans 70 years and several continents. What a challenge to take on. Uh, Has this been brewing for some time? I think it had been brewing without my even knowing it for quite a while. I had some notes that I took In 1998, when my dad told us a little bit about his childhood and youth in China and Taiwan, and they were just sort of the barest outline of a story. This was way before I ever thought of taking writing very seriously. I just wrote them down. I kept them. And then when I started taking writing more seriously, probably about 2014, 2015, I started to notice that the pieces that got attention and the pieces that got my attention were ones where my dad would pop up, maybe walking to the library with him or how he wanted me to study physics. Or, you know, these, these, these little things would pop up here and there. And when I finally wrote a short story about some peach trees of his, I realized that this is a character that had been just sort of <laughs> bubbling to the surface for such a long time. That's when I got those notes out and thought, maybe this is it. You know, maybe if I think about this character who keeps turning up in my writing this is a direction to go. So from eight pages of notes, you've got this epic novel and the book is dedicated to your father. How autobiographical is it and how much did you have to weave in? I had to weave in an awful lot of what happened in in China and Taiwan because I wasn't there. And also, I didn't know very much about my family's specific history. So I found as many other memoirs and oral histories and accounts and films of of other people's stories. And from that, I could piece together a a plausible storyline. So that part is, on the one hand, very fictional, but also very factual in that everything that happened happened to someone. As we get towards the later part of the novel, and it gets into the territory of my own life, and there's a character who's a little like a 
me, you know, just as a Henry character, as an analog of as my father. I think the younger character, her name is Lily, it's not that autobiographical. It's more fun. It's sort of that um, French phrase, what's the the words of the staircase? <laughs> you know, if only I had thought of doing that, you know, 30 years ago, now I know what I've, now I know what I've said. So um, the tail end, you know, it, it's really mixed in how much it's autobiographical or based on on a true story, but I, it is fiction. Those who know me know the fiction, fictional parts and those who don't, it, it doesn't matter. It's quite a responsibility because it, as well as your dad's story, the bits of your dad's story, as you're saying, it, it's other people's story as well during a very difficult time. Yeah, so I wanted to um, be as generous and as sensitive to those stories as I could. Part of that is trying to make the characters as rounded as possible. Even the minor or sort of secondary characters, I didn't want them to be props just to serve a plot point. My dream in writing, whether it's a short story or a novel, is that the secondary characters, while not stealing the show, I want them to be strong enough that you can imagine them being the main characters in their own books. And the central characters in this book are Malin and her son, Renshu. Where did they come from? Malin is broadly based on my paternal grandmother. We would call her Nai Nai. But women of 1920s through 30s China, she was the character. She was born in 1914, I think I want to say. No, 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 1918. Sorry, I had to change her age so many times. These timelines are just... uh, Yeah, so she's based on what I learned about many of of the women in China during that time. And the few things I knew about my my own grandma. And then her son, Renshu, who, when he goes to America, he takes on a uh, Western name and calls himself Henry, is sort sort of based on my father, but little younger and not quite as funny. I think my father was a lot funnier and more charming. (laughs) (laughs) And it did strike me reading this how much research you had to do. There's a lot about the country, the politics, the time, the culture, the language, the food. Where did you start with that? You know, I didn't know very much about the big history with an H, you know, so I had those notes. So I started with a book called China's War with Japan. And actually, the subtitle of the book in the American version is called China's Forgotten War with Japan. And it's by someone called Rana Mitter, who's a historian at Oxford, a specialist in 20th century China. The general narrative of World War II, a lot of attention has not been paid to the role that China played in fighting Japan so fiercely to the detriment, huge detriment of the country itself. But that really held back a lot of the Japanese forces, which then weakened them for the fights in the Pacific. So um, while I'm in no way a military historian or anything, that sort of was my starting point to get an appreciation of what that atmosphere was like. Once I had a, a grasp of how complex it was, and it was very complex. For example, the Chinese Civil War, which I often just say is, you know, after the Sino-Japanese War, it was actually going on before. <laughs> and then they stopped fighting each other, the nationalists and the communists, to fight the Japanese, sort of. And then once that war with Japan ended, they fought again. So it's it's incredibly complicated. But what I became more interested in were the people and what they endured to the point that they didn't care who was fighting for what reason. They were just wanted to find a home 
They wanted their country back, of course, and there was a great deal of patriotism, but they wanted all this chaos to stop. Then I started going into the personal stories. Researching all this, and um, based on your dad's experiences in those eight pages of notes, did that put you more in touch with your past and your heritage, did you feel, or was this something that you'd always known? It was definitely wasn't anything I had always known. So I'd say, yeah, and I think it offered me a way of becoming in touch with my past and a heritage that was, it was sort of like a backdoor into an understanding where, you know, the obvious way would be, well, just ask your dad again, talk to him, have, say, what, what are your stories? Tell us all about your youth. But that's not what he would want to do. And, and as an adult, I got to the point where I thought, and I don't want to ask him to do that either. So it was a way of, by proxy, learning, you know, maybe at the point when I was ready to write this novel and ask him, he may have forgotten a lot of the details anyway. So, I mean, I think this generation is fading. That was part of the reason I thought, I'm I'm just going to write this. I just really need to and find as many stories as I can while they are recorded and being told. And did it give you more understanding of his perspective? Because that perspective is very much... Henry's of not wanting to talk about it. Yeah, that definitely was like, okay, I understand why, you know, maybe I wouldn't want to be talking about these things either. Once I had researched enough to grasp some understanding of just how difficult it was. And in fact, for years I thought, oh, it's just my dad being quirky, but it really was an entire generation that was that quiet. And the scholarship on these survivors who remembered Republican China, so pre-communist China, who went to Taiwan and then the U.S., that you know, very specific slice of the Chinese diaspora, the scholarship on their experiences didn't really start to come until early 2000s and 2010s and teens. The stories weren't being told and, until I think people started to realize we're going to lose these. And Mei Lin, you mentioned earlier based on the experiences of, of women in China. I mean, she is a really fascinating and great character. She She's very independent-minded. But she, as a woman, she's quite vulnerable, and we see that as, as well physically and emotionally, that she can't make her own decisions in the terms that she's not allowed to. That was very much, I guess, the position of women in China at that time. Your first line of the novel, which is a great line, is... Dao Hongxi had three wives, their names are not important, because I guess that was true at the time. Yeah, that was absolutely true. The turn of the century in China for women was an interesting time because on the one hand, their names were not important. That was the attitude and maybe in some traditional senses continues to be the attitude. And that actually was a line from my dad when he did start telling us about his family. The first thing he said was, oh, my grandfather had a lot of wives. And I said, well, what were their names? And he said, it's not important. <laughs> so, so that, you know, first line goes to him. But at the same time, there was a bit of a women's movement in, the, in 1912, 13, 14. There was movement for women to be more educated. The end of imperialist China, the beginning of the republic, so trying to make China a democracy, that was 1912. And along with those movements came a push for women to become literate economically independent, learn how to depend on themselves. So there's this tension between an old system of their names are not important. The only thing that matters is if they give sons to the family with a new idea that women can do a lot. And so she's caught right in that. She loves the ideas. 
she's as fierce of a feminist as she can be, but she's also in a system that's not quite ready for her. Thank you, Melissa. Well, uh, we'll come back to you and talk more in just a moment. But let's stay with that theme of women, really, and hear from Claire Beasley. Her first novel, Waiting for the Winds to Change, came out in February. When I met Claire, I asked her to tell me what the novel's about. It was inspired by Henrik Ibsen's play, A Doll's House. A friend of mine was in the ballet adaptation of that and I watched it and was so transported to the idea of a woman leaving her family behind and what that might feel like. So I transported it into present day um, and then started thinking about, oh, hang on, that's a massive taboo. Women do not leave families and if they do, then they're frowned upon for basically the rest of their lives. And then I started exploring other taboos within the narrative as well. So things like coercive control in not just romantic relationships, but in familial relationships, self-harm. Uh, so basically follows the life of the children of the woman who's left, how they then adapted and how they had to cope with life with her not being around. The main character is Emmeline and she explores how her life has become quite dead end. She doesn't feel like there's a lot of inspiration for her. She's kind of stilted in her life. She's been waiting for her mum to return for about 10 years. So there's a message of hope as well that you know you can turn your life around you can find the right direction for you and the space to find your creative side even if it feels like you know you've been trapped in something for a really really long time you like to write about topics that need talking about more mm, yes so yes. those issues about coercive control that's that's what you're referring to yeah, in this book yeah and things like postnatal depression so i explore what that might feel like for a woman who's really struggling with her identity, feeling like she's lost a part of herself. Um, and I've had postnatal depression with both my children and it took me years to get over it. So it was something I really wanted to explore a little bit and understand what that impact might be, even though it's not sort of like a direct part of the whole narrative. It, it's there in the background as a reason as to why she felt she had to go. Yeah. And you have to tread very carefully, don't you, when you're writing about subjects yeah, like that? How yeah. do you ensure that you're you're making all the right choices and using the right words? I like a straightforward narrative. I don't want it to be too graphic. So I decided that I would write something in a caring, kind way, explore some of these difficult topics, but not in a, a blameful way or a way that made it feel too... Ooh, you know reactive to people because I mean I cried when I was writing certain scenes because it was hard but I didn't want it to feel like it was going to be too triggering for people who are actually reading it um, and a lot of the readers who have read it have come back to me and said this is kind of a really healing book to read and has changed their perspective on certain things which I've thought was really nice so that's lovely and, and there's a, a male perspective in this through mm. the character of Theo yes which in some women's fiction if you want to call it that is sometimes left out it's a difficult one to write when you're a woman I was quite determined that I wanted to show his side of things because there's never sort of a straightforward thing that you're in a coercive relationship and somebody's abusing you and it's a straightforward situation. A couple of the editors that I worked with were like, oh, I really don't think you should be showing his side of things because it's women fiction and we don't normally show that. And I was like, that's fine. But it's really important to me, actually, that we get to explore a little bit more about what's going on in his mind and that somebody who is in a situation where they feel the need to control something is normally because they have felt out of control at some point in their life. And I wanted to make it clear that he's not necessarily making the choices that he makes because he's just some evil, nasty villain, that there is some kind of thought process going on behind all of that, which I don't think sometimes we can necessarily see, especially from the receiving end of that kind of thing. 
but it will always be there. And I, I wanted to make sure that that was dealt with quite sympathetically. So um, how did you research that? I have been in some coercive relationships myself and I spent a lot of time working with a therapist and I have explored doing desk research, interviewing people um, and speaking to the therapist that I've worked with as to how that might feel on the other side. So what's going on for that person to then feel that they need to really control these sort of situations. So it's a little bit of first-hand experience, a bit of interviewing and a bit of quite in-depth research. So it felt like it was authentic. And Emmeline, your central character, this is where she, where she came from, but it sounds like she might have come from some of your experiences. As I say, she was born from the inspiration of thinking about, well, what would it be like to be a daughter who was left behind by your mum? But some of the things that she goes through are things I've either experienced or people very close to me have experienced, and I've been on the sort of supportive side of some of that stuff. There's a lot of me in there somewhere or other. It's probably quite well hidden. <laughs> but um, the maxim of writing about what you know, for me, is important so that you feel like you're writing authentically. And it's quite cathartic as well, actually, to be honest. And following that up, you've recently written about how you've been recently diagnosed as autistic and with ADHD. Has that affected how you write or what you write about? It definitely affects everything. <laughs> I've spent a lifetime thinking I'm stupid, I don't have any follow through, I've told myself I'm not creative at times because I get these peaks of really deep interest that then sort of just completely disappear after a few months or years. I have now sort of settled on a few creative activities that I do that help me stay grounded and stay social and do all the stuff that I need to do. What it's taught me is that when I'm in the hyper-focused mode, do as much as you can without burning out, but also to be gentle with myself when I'm not in the hyper-focus mode, but stay active within the areas that I'm interested in. So it might be that I need to reinvigorate the hyper-focus mode by exploring another topic that's really interesting to me at that time or a different medium. So it might be blogging or it might be a short story or something that I can do quickly rather than a whole novel, which is 80,000 words and months and months and months of work. And I'm much more gentle with myself now, rather than beating myself up because I'm like, oh, you've lost your mojo on this. You're clearly rubbish at that then, aren't you? That's really important for a lot of everybody, actually, to sort of think about how they speak to themselves. I don't do a lot of negative talk anymore. And this is published with a small publisher, C-A-A-B Publishing. What's it been like working with them? Oh, they've been fantastic. So... I did dabble in the whole like, oh, can I get an agent thing? And I sent my book off much too early because actually after submitting to a few agents and I got a couple of bits of feedback and then I looked at the start and I was like, oh, this is much too slow. It takes ages to get going. So I hauled a massive chunk out of it and rewrote the first half of the book. And then I was all ready to like, oh, I'll just self-publish it. I'll just do it myself. So I got it all ready on KDP and designed my book cover and la la la. And then I came across this small independent publisher and I was like, Oh, okay. Well, maybe I'll just give it a go. I like the idea of working with them because they're small and they focus on only a few authors every year and they seemed really, really friendly. And within a couple of weeks, they'd already finished the book and their beta readers had read it and everyone loved it. And I was just like, wow, I can't really believe it. Um, And they've been fabulous to work with because rather than feeling like I'm completely alone and wandering around in the dark, they've helped guide me through the whole process. They're obviously doing a lot of publicity as well. They did all the publishing side of it. So I don't really 
want to learn how to use Amazon <laughs> that much, I have to say. Um, um, as a kind of small business owner, you do have to pick up an awful lot of skills that you don't think you're going to need. But they've been amazing to work with. So what's next for you? I am, have a little mini project set up with a theatre company. So we're looking at whether we can take excerpts from the book or turn the whole book into a play. Is there some educational purpose we can use with, with maybe younger people? Or is there something that we need to just express? Because they're of a similar mind to me. There's things that we just don't talk about enough. I'm really excited about that project. I'm still trying to write two books. <laughs> um, so I have two other books on the back burner. Um, I've been so, so busy launching this one and also trying to keep my other business going. Yes, there's quite a lot of exciting things to be getting involved with. And Waiting for the Winds to Change by Claire Beasley is published by CAAB Publishing. We're talking on Bookmark today to Melissa Fu about her debut novel, Peach Blossom Spring. Melissa, Claire talking there about secondary characters and writing from a male perspective and something that rings particularly true for you, I think, with this novel. Yeah, I thought that her comments about wanting to include this perspective of of a male character, I thought that was really admirable because I think having rich secondary characters makes your story more more full, more more real. I wrote from several perspectives throughout my novel first Maylin she initially carries the narrative and then as as we go along in the story the the baton of the narrative is passed to Henry or Arenshu. So there's a, there's a bit of a male perspective there that I just had to imagine and it was quite fun. And then finally passing the baton to the Lily, the, the youngest generation. Part and parcel of being a novelist and writing fiction is you get to slip in between perspectives and consciousnesses. Yes, this is written from an, an omniscient point of view, so we do move into other people's minds. It, obviously, that was a conscious decision to tell it that way rather than you know have one section from one character and another section yeah. from another. Actually, it was a conscious decision, but it was never mine. (laughs) It just never worked as first person. You know, I could have maybe told it from the first person of, say, one of the characters and then cast back. But somehow it just it just never worked that way. And it's a little more more mysterious than I than I would have thought. You know, I think in other times when I've written things, they go, I'll try first person here or I'll I'll try this. I'll try second. And it was very much more. I'm in charge of the craft doing this. But here, I never could take the first person and and actually never wanted to. And there's also something in in the novel about what makes a culture. There's a lot about artefacts. A scroll Mm. is incredibly important to the story. And throughout the story, people are touching and feeling things and carrying things, jewellery and trinkets with them. I think I tried to um, evoke as much of a time and a culture as I could through objects and things that we carry. And maybe some of that was, again, pulling away from the political reasons for why there was so much turmoil throughout, not just the wars, but, you know, it kind of continues throughout the book. But it's the things that we can hold or touch that maybe last longer, one hopes, than some of the political intricacies. And I just like looking at things myself. So it was an excuse to put them in, you know, the story. And the language, there's actual Chinese characters in the text as well. Yeah, I used a, I used a few Chinese characters. I used some, some words throughout. Then as we get towards the end, there are a few characters sprinkled in. The youngest character, Lily, is learning Chinese. So it was a wonderful opportunity to put in some 
basic characters, but they're so beautiful and they're quite simple, or big words but simple characters. And you can just, for me, it was a chance to just sort of let a little bit of the language shine through, so it didn't just seem like a bunch of strange, scary marks. You can say, well, let's just look at this one character for Sun. And, you know, in, in her voice, you know, she says, well, it looks like sort of like a box with a line through. You can almost imagine it like a sun. Slowing it down to just look at the lines on the page. Maybe, again, it's it's looking at the artifacts, looking at the things. It puts you in the shoes of both Meilin and Renshu in terms of seeing a language that you don't understand because, well, Renshu moves to America and feels slightly bewildered about that. But even in China, there are so many different languages. Yes, I think that's something that's often lost on... Um, if you don't know too much about China, you just think, do you speak Chinese? And actually, the, the question is a little bit of a non-question because there are so many dialects. I mean, Mandarin is, is the official language of the country. And in the story, it's also the official language in, in Taiwan at the time that they are there. Even now, it's really hard for them to understand each other from different parts of China. So I went on a research trip. I went to China and I had learned a little bit of Mandarin. But I went to the Sichuan province in, in the west and I was in Chongqing. There they speak Sichuanese. And there was a, a tour guide from Beijing. And so his Mandarin was perfect and his English was perfect. And he's like, I don't know what these guys are saying here in <laughs> Sichuanese. Beautifully complex country. Well, let's hear your second choice of music now, which is Chopin's ballad in G minor. You know, we were just speaking about language. And I think that music is another language. Something magical about the language of music is that when you hear it, you sort of immediately understand it, but then also continue to learn to understand it for a lifetime. This particular piece is a song that the character Henry hears in the U.S., kind of at the height of his confusion of being in a new country, struggling with another language and culture, being away from home. He starts to hear this music coming through the wall. His next door neighbor is playing it. He just finds deep comfort in it and wants to hear it again and again. You don't have to speak English to love this music. You can speak any language. It's also, I put it in the book for the reason that my dad loved Chopin. And in particular, he loved this recording of Arthur Rubinstein playing this ballade. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our and we're talking on Bookmark today to Melissa Fu about her debut novel, Peach Blossom Spring. Melissa is set in China and Taiwan during the 1940s, 50s and 60s. Very complex time politically and China not the easiest state to get information out of. How did you research the politics of that time and sift out the misinformation from the fact? For the parts that were in China, I think there has been sort of a resurgence of interest both in Western scholarship and in China itself in that war of aggression with Japan, as they call it, the, the Japanese invasion, it was 1937 to 1945. So I read 
what I could. There were also a series of Chinese documentaries that I watched. I think there were five or six hours, all about the city of Chongqing and the bombing of Chongqing. I don't know if there was misinformation, but it, I mean, it's from the the Chinese government. But it, it did line up with other books and stories that I had read about that time. I think now that piece of Chinese history is a little, slightly little less sensitive to think about, and and the narrative is that they want to recognize what the country did. Taiwan, yeah, it, again, it's these scholars who are who are have been working more recently. So there was a really critical, actually, PhD thesis from a historian at the University of Missouri, who focused on those who went from China to Taiwan. His name is Dominic Yang, and then I found some memoirs. I leaned on memoirs, stories, films. So, good thing I'm writing fiction, <laughs> and it, it's really I think the emotional, the emotional truths that I was most interested in, and how they would shape and help populate my story. So, is my book a work of political commentary or historian historical? Not no, not really. It's just it's one. Family caught in huge bits of history, and how we understand that just really varies. Whether or not you're looking at the Chinese and Japanese wars, or whether you're looking at European wars, or if you're thinking of Ukraine or Somalia or Croatia, I mean, the way we see these events and understand them in time. And the Chinese diaspora mm-hmm. is that a group that I mean, it's a massive group that you have had any contact with. I mean, certainly this is a story that's going to resonate for them. Yeah, you know what? That it's been one of the most exciting things, and also one of the things I was quite nervous about. You know, what will people whose families have had similar experiences? How will they see this book? You know, I mean, I wrote it meaning every word and wouldn't change them, but I just wondered how it would chime with other experiences. I've heard from quite a few readers who have had not just the Chinese diaspora, but Vietnamese. You know, different. Have had the experiences of single and double migrations in their families, and and although the details of the histories and the family stories have been different, of course, people have said, "Oh, um, it meant a lot to me, and I want to talk to my own family now and learn more." So that's been really, really rewarding. And sadly, the theme of refugees is still well, particularly current at the moment. Yeah, has it made you think differently? About those individual stories about what being a refugee is, people leave places unwillingly, right? What little I knew of my dad's story growing up included the idea that they had to leave and they didn't want to. Growing up, I've always been interested in in the stories of people who have, you know, when I grew up in New Mexico, people who would people who would come to this to the states, leaving something behind, maybe by choice, maybe by force. It never stops being sad that people lose their homes for other people's political machinations, but it's something that's always been there. You know, you'd hope that it would stop, but it, it doesn't. And as I say, it's dedicated to your dad, who's sadly no longer with us. What do you think he would think of it, given that it's based on those eight pages of notes you took from that time he opened up? I don't know what he would think of it. He claimed later in his life that um, he didn't remember ever telling us these stories. So maybe he would say, "Where did I ever <laughs> said that?" Maybe he would have liked it. He he actually really loved a good story. He loved huge novels, 
movies with great plot-driven stories. And I think I'll flatter myself and say maybe he would have liked it a little bit. I think he probably would have loved it. We're very proud of you, Melissa. Thank you for that. We'll come back to you in just a moment. Let's hear from Cathy Moore now. She's director of the Cambridge Literary Festival. The festival began life as Cambridge Word Fest in 2003, with Winter Festival starting in 2008. The festival regularly welcomes hundreds of writers and thousands of book lovers with a diverse and thought-provoking programme. During the pandemic, the festival went online, but now they're back with face-to-face events for this year's festival, which runs from the 20th to the 24th of April. When I spoke to Cathy, who's the festival's founder and director, I started by saying how good it was to be returning to live events. Yeah, isn't it just? Yeah, we're all all really very, very excited at that prospect, although trying desperately to remind ourselves how we do it. Um, And actually, (laughs) nobody else knows because nobody was at the festival um, when we were in person. So it's a big task to get it all up and running again, but um, one which I'm sure we will rise to. (laughs) And you haven't been away entirely, have you? You've had an online presence over the last couple of years. Yeah, we have. And that's that's really kept us going. And I think we've created an online audience both in Cambridge and beyond and and also globally I mean, our, our second biggest audience is now in America which is quite surprising so that's been a very very good thing we've taken our our box office in house because people were booking via the website and and we've we've kept that on board for the in person festival so people will be able to buy tickets every day of the festival via their mobile phone if you know if they're that way inclined but we will also have a a pop-up box office in the old divinity school if, if people would rather just um, potter along there and, and buy them there. And what will this festival look like? Will it look like the festivals before or will there be remnants of COVID safety there or, or are you? <laughs> as, as few as possible. I mean what 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 we have and we hope as discreet as possible too because I think we could all do with you know given everything that's going on internationally as well I think we could, we could all do with a break from being reminded of, of COVID at, at the very least. We're having fewer events during the day. So rather than the usual half an hour turnaround, we're allowing an hour so that we can get the audiences out, get some air into the venues before the others come back in. And we will look at the guidance nearer the time. I think, you know, we decided actually it was pointless making any hard and fast decisions now about what we were going to require, whether we'd require masks or sanitizer. I mean, I think we will probably encourage people to wear masks and, and people will if they want to. I mean, yeah, you know, I've been to the Arts Picture House recently and half of the audience were wearing masks. And, you know, if, if they want to, then they will. So then that's completely fine. But as I say, we, we will we will say absolutely uh, if we have any restrictions, we'll announce those nearer the time when, when we see where we're up to with it all. And so four days, 20 to the 24th of April, four days of wonderful events. What are the highlights? Many. <laughs> many, <laughs> many highlights. Many, and it depends who you are. I mean, you know, we've, we've tried to do a very broad-based festival, so there is truly is something for everybody. I mean, we've got lots of, you know, fabulous literary fiction, as as usual, with Rose Tremaine and Julian Barnes making his debut appearance at the festival. Ali Smith, of course, with her latest. My personal highlight, I think, is a vicarious pleasure, because I, I, I'm from Liverpool, and all of my family, and especially my son, are huge Liverpool fans, so we have... John Barnes coming to talk about racism, actually. Um, there's much excitement about, about that one. And who doesn't love Will Young, really? What's yes. he coming to talk about? About mental health. I mean, he's he's had a difficult few years, I think. I mean, he struggled with being gay when he when he was first a singer. The love songs he was singing were clearly to, you know, women, which I think caused him 
distress and then he's, he's had a family tragedy recently so so the book is about mental health and it, and it looks really exceptional there are lots of celebrities who either have novels or have memoirs how do you choose which which ones to pick Oh, that's really an interesting question. And I, I would love to say that I sit down and I read every book from cover to cover and choose them on their merits. A lot of it is to down to availability. There's always great competition within the festival circuit to get the big names because we need the income. Some of the celebrity novels, I'm not mentioning any now because um, I'll be blacklisted by them. <laughs> And not always, not always the best. I mean, I, I kind of think, you know, these celebrities should potentially stick with what they know rather than wandering into novel terrain, whether they've written a novel or not. I mean, they're generally kind of great people and interesting to chat to in an event. Um, you might not necessarily want to purchase the book. You know, having somebody like Will Young, I just thought, well, actually, there are so many people in our audience of that age who who have fond memories. And if, if not, by their children, by their young daughters who were kind of swooning at the time. So, yeah, instinct, I guess. And whereabouts will it be this year? Well, we've got a new venue this year. We've got, we're, we're still in the Cambridge Union Chamber, our kind of old sort of favourite, and the old Divinity School. But we've also, we've got a partnership with the University Arms Hotel, which is a beautiful place, and that's our third venue for this year. We've got events there on the Wednesday night, Thursday night, and then all day Saturday and Sunday. And there's always a nice atmosphere around these places. I mean, lots of people gather together to talk about writing. Of course, a nice atmosphere, but you've had tables outside before and pop-up food venues, daffodils in the courtyard <laughs> at the Union, which all helps make it feel lovely. Will they be there again this year? Um, we'll certainly have the tables, and I think the deck chairs have been ordered, So because obviously <laughs> the weather's going to be glorious. Of um, course. I'm not sure about pop-up food stalls this year. I mean, I think... I don't think we've been allowed to have them in the past. I and mean, I think we had ice cream maybe one year, but no food stalls, certainly not this year anyway. I mean, the, new, the Union has got its fabulous new restaurant. And also in the centre of town, we've got, you know, loads of wonderful sandwich sellers and any end of produce. And how long have you been doing this now, Cathy? I mean, 15 oh, years, is it? This will be my 19th oh. spring festival. So next year we're celebrating our 20th anniversary. And does it get easier after almost 20 years to programme? It never feels any easier because we do two festivals a year. And for three years, you may remember, we did Wimpole. So that was programming three festivals a year. So that all felt very much harder. But also there, there are very, very many more festivals now. I think when we began 19 years ago, there were something like 60 literary festivals. There are now 400, 500 odd. It's easier in the sense that our reputation is kind of much higher now and that authors want to come here so we're often festival of choice for, for the publishers to place their um, their authors and they know they'll get good author audiences and good author care and you do have a, a good solid stable team people who've been with the festival almost since the beginning haven't you know what they're doing oh, in incredible I mean it, it is incredible and actually we're, we're just re-engaging with everybody now you know yourself included I mean, you know, we couldn't have done it without the kind of goodwill that we have received in Cambridge for, well, now for 19 years. Wonderful stewards, wonderful head stewards, artist liaison, you know, we've had incredible support for which I'm hugely grateful. And we still, you know, if anybody is interested, then email us via the website, send us your name and details. And is it a challenge or particular things that you bear in mind when you're programming for a Cambridge audience? Yeah, I mean, Cambridge are always very demanding and particular as an audience. And 
very, very issues based. I came into this because I loved literary fiction and, you know, was completely mortified when the bigger audiences were for the nonfiction books, you know, the science books, the history books, the economics. Now I've got a much better handle on what the audience like and think, you know, I think we do a reasonable balance. And is there one particular event that you're looking forward to this year? It actually has to be. I mean, I always love Ali Smith's debut writers, but this year we've got this very, I'm feeling like I'm tearing up right now. We've got this one of, one of, the, one of the people that you've been talking about all of these years, who's been, who've been helping out all of these years, is somebody called Joe Browning Rowe. And Joe Browning Rowe is on the debut writing panel this year with a simply stunning book, A Terrible Kindness. So I could not be happier. And so that's, that's my pick of the festival. And you can book tickets and find out more about the Cambridge Literary Festival, which runs from the 20th to the 24th of April at cambridgeliteraryfestival.com. We've been talking on Bookmark today to Melissa Fu about her debut novel, Peach Blossom Spring, which is published by Wildfire. And let me also, before we go back to Melissa, tell you about those two competitions we spoke about. We've got Magic Daisy Publishing Children's Poetry Competition for younger listeners. It's actually for children aged 4 to 11 years old. It's free to enter. The closing date is the 19th of April, so we've still got a bit of time. The winning poems are published. You can be a published poet at the age of four. How about that? To find out more, go to the website, which is magicdaisypublishing.com. And our second competition today, a signed copy of Melissa's novel, Peach Blossom Spring. What are we going to ask listeners, Melissa? What is the name of the folk singer who wrote the first song I chose here in California? Ah, I see. Were you paying attention? What was the name of the singer who wrote and sang the song here in California that we played a little earlier on the show? If you know that and want to enter the competition, then pop your answer on an email. Send it to daytime at cambridge105.co.uk and mark it for bookmark. The closing date is the 24th of April. Well, Melissa, we'll hear your last choice of music in just a moment. But what's next for you? What are you doing at the moment? How do you follow this? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. You know, so this was a story that came from something that stopped me in my tracks. You know, my mom made a comment about my dad's peach trees. And I just thought, oh, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And now I'm sort of waiting for something else to stop me in my tracks. I've got some themes and some ideas and sort of preoccupations that I would want to write about. But I don't yet have the story that's going to carry them. So we'll, so we'll see. Same. Yeah. Probably maybe try try another novel. Probably not 70 years worth of story, <laughs> though. Yeah. Make it easy for yourself this time. <laughs> yeah. And a question we ask all our guests on Bookmark. What are you reading at the moment? I have just finished reading this marvelous book called When I Sing Mountains Dance by Yaren Sola, S-O-L-A. And she's a Catalonian writer. It's magical. It's not very long. It's maybe um, 30, 35,000 words novella length. You know, it's a, it's a slim novel, but um, it has so many points of view. You see, you have points of view of these witches up on the mountains of the Catalonia near Barcelona, and then there's a shepherd. The mountains speak. Mushrooms speak. Excellent. It's wonderful. <laughs> and it, it, it also tells a story spanning many, many years. You have me at speaking mushrooms. Yeah. That sounds great. Well, a heads up that our next show, our featured guest is the writer for young adults, A.M. Howell. But we'll sign out now, Melissa, with your last choice of music, which is Adele and Rolling in the Deep. Why this one? 
This novel took a lot of editing. We sold the manuscript, and yay, I'm going to have a book. And that was 2020. And then there were extensive structural edits. And to my editor's amazing credits, they really helped me shape it and improve it. But it was hard work. And we went back and forth about four times with really major changes. And on that fourth edit, I felt like, I think this is it. I think I've finally got the characters where I want them to be. So I turned that in and I went on this really long walk listening to Adele on my headphones and kind of walking out in the fields. And this song came on and it just, just the energy of that and the, the rhythm, I, I just, it just felt like a triumph. There's a 